This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London. It gives me real pleasure to introduce the doyen of Byzantine historians, Judith Herrin. She is the author of The Formation of Christendom, Women in Purple, and Byzantium, The Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire, amongst others. Now, Alan Lane has published her new book, Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe, and they have done it beautifully. Like her last, it is golden and is full of sumptuous pictures of the astonishing, enchanting mosaics in Ravenna. These mosaics are some of the most beautiful in the world. They are not in museums, they are still in situ, in the churches for which they were made. Why on earth are they there in this rather drab city, at least it was so when I was last there, polluted, nondescript, I'm sure it's not that any longer, but anyway, a um, hundred miles down the coast from Venice. What was Ravenna? Ravenna must have been a very small, not terribly important Roman city, although it was uh, promoted to be the capital of the province of Emilia and then joined to Picinum as well. So its governor must have felt he was gaining in importance. And it did have a very, very vital uh, uh, addition, which is the port at Classis. So that was the port that was chosen by Julius Caesar to be the East Mediterranean base for the Roman fleet. Uh, the one near Rome at Messinum was for the West Mediterranean. And it was a large port created on a lake, in a lake, that could hold 250 ships. And it was so defensible. The city was defensible. The port was less defensible. But then it was uh, smaller and had this very important role as a naval base. So it collected a lot of people who worked on ships, rigging, sails, anchors, all that. And it was, of course, a very important centre for trade as well as maritime uh, activity, military activity, naval activity. But the combination of a rather small city and a very important port made this Ravenna Classis uh, urban fab, um, environment increasingly important as Italy became aware of much more fearsome enemies than the empire had seen in the 2nd and 3rd century. So by the 4th century things were really getting difficult and at the point where the Goths were uh, besieging Milan, where the imperial court was based, the Emperor Honorius decided that it was time to move and chose Ravenna particularly because it was so defensible. Because it's in a marshy delta and therefore it was inaccess relatively inaccessible by land. Is relatively inaccessible by land unless you could navigate through the many tributaries of the River Po and all the lakes and marshes that were created by the silt coming down annually. It was a very inhospitable uh, environment and visitors occasionally complained that it was just marshland and that you had to punt around in a boat. You couldn't, there weren't very many roads. But that was, of course, what made it attractive to the beleaguered emperor in Milan, where he lived in an enormous city with vast walls and hadn't got the troops to defend the walls. So it had its advantages. And this and is the... the, the, the Western Roman, you're referring to the Western Roman Emperor in Milan, uh, the point where already the centre of power for the, East, for the Roman Empire has passed to Constantinople yes. some time ago. Yes, I think the people in the West never really recognised this fact. They considered themselves Roman Emperors of the, the old-fashioned sort. But the Theodosius I had effectively divided the Roman Empire, which he ruled as one unit, 
into two halves so that his two sons could inherit equal shares. And this did not make them uh, uh, friendly and cooperative. It just provoked rivalry. But Constantinople was not just the newer foundation, more dynamic, growing faster, attracting all the uh, people who want to be near the court. Uh, that was the serious imperial court, uh, rather than the court of Honorius in Milan, which was smaller, which was less important, which had less international contacts. By the time that they transferred then to Ravenna, it's not long before some real drama starts happening in Ravenna with Gala Placidia, and, um, which of course is the name that people associate with the mosaics in Ravenna. And she's, but she's very early in the story Ravenna, I think. Yes. Indeed. Uh, she, she really put her mark on the city by her, through her buildings. But in addition to the buildings which retain, I mean the mausoleum which retains her name, although she was not buried in it, that, that building survives. And the other major church that survives is, is that of San Giovanni Evangelista, although it was terribly destroyed in World War II and has been reconstructed. But it is the basis of a mid-5th century basilica church, vast and very impressive, whereas the mausoleum is tiny and exquisitely decorated. Well, of course, the whole of uh, all of her churches would have been mosaic. Everything would have been brilliantly decorated. But the, these are the two which we have, and San Giovanni has none of its original decoration. And her, um, her, her emergence into well, for want of a better word, power, um, had a, a considerable amount of drama attached to that. The, the, her association with the Goths is so interesting in the way you present it in the book, and quite unexpected to me. Well, it is a very extraordinary story. Um, it's not clear how she was taken prisoner by the Goths when they were besieging Rome in 410. This is the, this is the moment when Roman history when the Roman Empire comes to an end for people like St. Augustine. I mean, the disaster of disasters that the great capital city of the world has fallen to the barbarians. We know it wasn't the end of the Roman Empire, but Augustine thought it was. And she was captured and taken prisoner, and of course was a very, very valued and important prisoner because the Goths figured that they could... Uh, keep her as a hostage uh, for um, a, you know, uh, many bargains that were to be struck. So, but they didn't realise, I don't think they thought or, or that she thought she would spend four years travelling with the Goths up and down Italy and then into Gaul and then being forced to marry their king and then having a son um, who was named Theodosius after his paternal grandfather and given a very Roman sort of uh, advent, but uh, sadly died as a baby and was buried. So her um, association with the Goths was quite extraordinary, but it did give her a sense of how these people lived and how much they longed to be like the Romans and as good as the Romans. And they were very Romanized. And they were Christian. They were Christians. They had been converted to Christianity in the 4th century by their bishop, Ulfila. But at the time, the, the version of Christianity that was in fashion and was supported by the emperors in Constantinople was that defined by the deacon Arius, who was later condemned as a heretic. So they had adopted a version of Christianity which other Christians did not recognise, and that meant that there were rivalries and problems of relationships. Um, but she understood that they were Christian and they worshipped the same God, although they might have defined the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in different ways. And so then she... she Tell us how she left the Gothic court and turned up as 
uh, regent, I think, rather than empress, in Ravenna. So she was exchanged for 600,000 bushels of wheat because the Goths were starving and they needed to buy grain so that they could eat. And at that point, they were so desperate for supplies that they agreed to allow her to leave with the other Roman hostages that had been taken prisoner at the same time, senatorial figures. And they returned to Rome, where she was forcibly married to her second husband, a Roman general. But he died, leaving her with two children. And eventually, after many problems and journeys to Constantinople and back, she assumed the power of regent for her young son, Valentinian III, who was all of seven years old when he was established as the emperor of the Roman Empire in the West. And clearly he was not going to be able to exercise authority for many years. And in that time, his mother took over. And as regent, she effectively, uh, I, I think she effectively governed it's very difficult to prove her initiatives, her uh, determination to change the way um, the administration worked, but I think we see enough hints of her hand to be sure that she was able to overcome the other councillors, advisers, um, who doubtless had, um, had formed a sort of council of regency for the young emperor. One has the sense of an exceptionally charismatic and clever woman who's able to um, beat the men at their own political games and uh, spar with them theologically as well. Yes, I think that is absolutely accurate. Uh, and her, the few times that we hear of her writing letters, it's quite clear that she was communicating with popes and bishops, um, with great ease, and the two letters that survive are to her uh, nephew, and her cousin in Constantinople, rather formulaic and straightforward letters, but uh, clearly she was writing all the time, and these are the only two that have been saved uh, quite by chance. So it's not, it's not long before things go badly for her offspring, and Ravenna is taken by, I don't know how to pronounce him, Odo, how do you pronounce Odoaka? Well, I think Odoasa, because some people spell it with a V in the middle, Odovasa, um, and that makes it easier to pronounce. So Odovasa is a Hun, and let's not linger on him, although he was all right, because there's so many to think about, so much to think about. The, the, and the next important character, and deeply important to Ravenna, and more than Ravenna, clearly, is Theodoric. Who was Theodoric? Why did he conquer Ravenna, and what was his rule like? What did he do for Ravenna? And was what, what, what date are we by this stage? Yes, so he, he must have been born in about in the 560s, um, in, uh, in somewhere in the Balkans. Uh, his father was the leader of a Gothic tribe. There were many of these groups usually fighting each other but on, they were also fighting the Romans. And they were fighting the emperor in Constantinople, who was there, there. It was Constantinople that they wished to conquer. And after one peace uh, agreement that was made between the Romans and these Goths, hostages were exchanged, which was absolutely traditional, and Theodoric was sent as a hostage for his father and his uncle's good behaviour. And he was sent to Constantinople at the age of eight and spent a decade there. And I've looked very closely at what happened to these hostages. Some were even female hostages, daughters of kings. And they appear to have been kept in palaces and to have been educated and treated very well. Um, they were forced to uh, attend court and they were shown off by the emperor. These are my hostages. These are the young children of my allies. And the implication was that if the Allies stepped out of line, the hostages might come to harm. But after a decade of watching this court, how it worked, how the empire was run, how to govern, how to be an emperor, Theodoric was sent back to his father on the assumption in Constantinople that having absorbed all this good 
um, Roman influence, he would rule as a, an ally. But on the contrary, he preferred to exert his independence. And after many years of fighting and negotiating and trying to win territory for his people to settle on, he persuaded the Emperor Zeno, or he thought he persuaded the Emperor Zeno, to allow him to march into Italy a very, very long way, if you think about going from Constantinople to Ravenna on foot, to march into Italy with all his people and his followers and their wives and children and cattle and all the rest, and to occupy, to conquer uh, um, Ravenna, to defeat Odoasa, and to establish his own rule as king under the authority of the Eastern Emperor Zeno. So and that's what, that's the, what he did. So he, had, he, he, he was subject to the Eastern Emperor, although he was a Goth, but he was entirely familiar with the Eastern, the Christian Greek practices and indeed educated and schooled in them. So he was able to straddle the cultures in a way that was unusual or was common? No, very, very uncommon. I think it's quite unique, in fact, uh, precisely because he'd had this very long exposure to the education, uh, to training in the eastern capital. When he finally arrived in Ravenna, he set himself up as in a little mini Constantinople with his own court, but he ruled as king, and he never assumed the title emperor, although he was occasionally honoured with it by flatterers who called him Augustus, as if he was an emperor. And he but built. He hmm? And he built. And he built. And he built in rivalry with Gala Placidia. That's very evident. And he was also very determined for his Aryan Christian followers to have Gothic uh, churches for the Goths to worship in, which were as grand and as beautiful as anything that anybody else built. But he was tolerant of, of the Eastern uh, religion, the Eastern Christianity. He had, he had the, as it were, the descendants of old Romans living and working in the city for him, including Boethius. At a late date in his reign, Boethius was actually appointed master of the offices, which was, you know, the prime minister, so to say. Uh, and he had been in contact with Theodoric before, and his sons had been made senators at Theodoric's uh, suggestion. So yes, there were good, close relations with Bo Boethius and uh, all the Catholic Christians in Rome, where Theodoric maintained very good relations with the popes, and of course he was also very tolerant of the Jews. And people say, well, this was because the Goths were a tiny minority in a huge uh, country full of uh, Italian, Romans, what are we to call them, local people, who were Christian, and by and large they were not Aryan Christians, they were, they were Catholic Christians. And they followed the Bishop of Rome in whatever he decreed was correct theology. Theodoric was tolerant of all that, and his churches in Ravenna show that he was, uh, he was as competent uh, a builder and lawgiver and uh, administrator as he was a victorious general, because he seems to have been very successful in his military campaigns, as well as diplomatic relations with all the other forces, not just in Italy, but in the Balkans and in southern Gaul and into Spain, and with the Franks in the north of, of France, as it is today. Um, so he had very close relations with many, many other rulers. And the, and the churches for which he's chiefly remembered are, I think it's San Apollinari Nuovo and San Apollinari Classe. No, San Apollinari Nuovo is the name now given to the church that he founded as his palace church, oh, sorry. right next door to yes. his palace. And it was, de it was dedicated to Christ um, at, at, um, in its original form. But the name that we have um, is the one that was given to it when the relics 
of Santa Polinaris himself were brought from Classis and brought into the city for their protection in the 9th century. So it's a much later name. But that is the church that he built with these very spectacular mosaics. Really, very, very impressive. And these were the ones that were later um, eviscerated when his own image was so interesting. We'll come, we'll come back to that, um, yeah. if, we, if we may. Um, yes, of course. The, um, the, uh, he, he also allowed, I think, uh, the, the beginning of the building of San Vitale, um, which was Catholic rather than Aryan. Yes, that, this is, I think this is very important that people don't realise that the Church of San Vitale, which is the most striking monument in the city, was begun while the Goths were ruling, were in control, were supporting the Aryan Christian churches, and yet the Catholic bishop was permitted to start work on this great building, which took many years, but a whole series of them. It's Ecclesias. so interesting, this sort yeah. of to toler tolerance for other denominations, which one finds from the, the, the Gothic side, ironically, well, I don't know why that should be ironic, but anyway, from the Gothic side rather than the, um, uh, the, the Catholic side, uh, yes. because the, it the, then the, turned on its head very quickly when yes. um, Belisarius, when, when, when the Eastern Emperor sends Belisarius to get back Ravenna for the Eastern Empire from the Goths, so to speak. Is that, broadly speaking, what happens after Theodoric's demise? Yes, there's a, a very sad um, problem that his daughter, his only surviving child, uh, Amala Swintha, had been married to a, a, a goth from Spain who would have been a very, a very good son-in-law to Theodoric, but he died. And their child, a, a young boy, was again set up as a youthful king with advisers and with his mother again in the role of regent. But she found it almost impossible to unite the Goths and the local Italo-Romans. It, it was a very, very hard road for her to sew. And she was, in effect, she was murdered by her cousin who took over. And Justinian, the emperor in Constantinople, was furious and he used her murder as a pretext to say we must return Italy to imperial control and eventually Belisarius succeeded in 540. So, but it was a long, long business and uh, of course it wasn't over in 540. Uh, the war continued for quite some time. The Goths were very resilient. And um, so when, when the imperial forces had come back, into the eastern imperial forces had regained Ravenna, they then built San Vitale, or completed San Vitale, yes. and um, they did, under Justinian and Theodora, they, the, there is a, this extraordinary business with the mosaics, which is still there to be seen, and which is so vividly reproduced in your book. W will you j just allude to, the, to that? They are extraordinary, and one of the reasons why I felt obliged to explore the city and its history was that really nobody explains why there should be pictures of the emperor and empress in Constantinople on the walls and in the main apse of this very important church. Clearly, there may have been a notion that um, the rulers of Constantinople had to be thanked for sending these imperial forces to reassert Catholic control in the city. But even so, they are the most spectacular depictions of a ruler with his court, with his guard and, his, and the bishop beside him and the empress, the empress in her full regalia with her ladies-in-waiting and priests opposite I mean, they are very spectacular, and, and I think there must be there must be more than just a, a thank offering to these distant figures who never went to Ravenna, who never hardly ever left Constantinople. 
And the phenomenon of the emperor, let alone the empress, being emblazoned in splendor in the apse of a church like that is unique or yes. just rare? No, unique. Not to be found in Constantinople, even in the most important buildings built by Justinian and Theodora. No emperor or empress in, in Hagia Sophia, or in their other monuments, their other churches, or in any of the other churches, as far as we know, that they built and they financed. Now, we don't think they financed the one in, in Ravenna because there is a local banker who put up a lot of the money, and the bishops also had great resources, which they poured into this very extraordinary building. But this, these, these, these images are unique. But the, um, in Theodoric's church, there had been images of Theodoric. And what happened to those? Yes. Well, these were the images of the king ruling in his palace and standing beside his harbour, showing off his, his ships riding at anchor. And these, these images were later defaced and replaced by uh, uh, brickwork on the harbour side. By Justinian's people? By authorities um, appointed by Justinian yeah. and effectively through imperial uh, approval according to the law issued by the Emperor Justinian, which was that Aryan Christians were not allowed to, 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 to make wills and therefore could not pass on their inheritance. And this stigmatised the Aryan Christians um, not just for their religion but also made them very second-class citizens and it enhanced the notion of Catholic supremacy which is what we see at Santa Polinari Nuovo, where the image of Theodoric enthroned was removed and replaced with gold, and the image of his courtiers were, uh, were replaced with nice curtains, except that some of their hands were left behind. So interesting. There's little teeny hands on the pillars. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an... I mean, it, it is one ruler airbrushing out of history the images of another. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it's so clear and so fascinating and both, both of them are still there. The, the, uh, the, 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 the airbrushing of Theodoric, you, you see the golden wool, absolutely wonderful. And you, your descriptions of all this, are, are, it's so interesting. And also the, um, the sense in which Theodoric's tolerance of the Catholic Roman Christianity or Roman Christianity was repaid by the uh, by the Greeks with intolerance and yes. I mean so poor Theodoric's legacy, which was in so many ways interesting and, and deeply constructive, culturally broadening, is is rather stopped by by what by the response to him, and then after that the the Lombards appear on the scene in northern Italy and um, I, I must just go back a moment because of course what I meant to say was that the Emperor Justinian had also told the Archbishop the Catholic Archbishop of Ravenna that all the Aryan churches were to return to his uh, domain so they were to be converted and indeed there were Aryan churches in in Rome that were also converted. Forcibly. And, so, and, in, and the policy had been in, introduced in Vandal, Africa, uh, before uh, it was introduced in Italy. So there was a, it wasn't just a question of stigmatising the Aryan Catholics, it was actually the Aryan Christians. It was actually taking away their churches and giving them to the Catholics so that there was an absolutely clear transference of the property and that meant resources, land, as well as um, uh, buildings. It's When you put it like that, it suddenly sounds comparable to an Islamic con conquest that comes later. I'm afraid this is all too familiar yeah. and very, very sad. And I do feel very strongly that it's a, a terrible retrogression a, 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 from... Uh, a more broadly 
tolerant attitude of um, each to his own, as Theodoric put it, um, I cannot uh, I cannot forbid you to to venerate although uh, your God, although I do not agree with you, I cannot force you to believe otherwise, and that principle I think I can't force you to do to believe what I believe, but you do it in your private way, and we just let it be a private matter between us. That's so much easier to understand today, where there are many, many cults, many, many sorts of beliefs, and many sects and many different sorts of, of, of institutions, religious institutions. And if we can't accept that people have a right to do their own thing and believe what they believe uh, because they think it's right, we're never going to be able to live with each other. I couldn't agree more. But then, so then along come the Lombards, and things start getting even worse, not necessarily because of the Lombards, but because of the people's behaviour towards one another. Um, the doc um, who, who, who were the Lombards, and, and, and where do they, how, how do they affect Ravenna? Because they didn't take Ravenna, I think, or not until much later. The Lombards uh, were another tribal people who seem to have originated somewhere up in um, Denmark, perhaps around the northern Baltic, and who had again been pushed further west and south by other tribes and eventually found a homeland to the north of the Alps, to the east, uh, eastern Alps um, in parts of um, southern Hungary. But they too looked over, the, they knew what was over the mountains. They worked as mercenaries and they hired themselves to the Roman army when the Romans found that they needed extra troops. And this use of mercenary troops had been one of the causes of the decline of empire from the very beginning, which was a weakness. But nonetheless, the Lombards had served, indeed, they served under Belisarius in Italy. So they knew that Italy was this wonderfully sunny, fertile place, and they wanted to live there too. And, and they were sensitive to its weaknesses. Uh, pr pr uh, provocation was a quarrel with the Avars, uh, yet another uh, tribal people, and instead of fighting to the death, they decided to move on, and they moved over the Julian Alps into northeastern Italy, and they went straight to Milan and down the west side of Italy. So they occupied Milan and Genoa, and uh, the area um, uh, north of the Po, and that was the region that they uh, that they um, t they where they became uh, they settled. And they, they continued, continuously fought for more land and they attacked all the territories that Theodoric had controlled in northern Italy and made his and reduced what had been his kingdom to a much smaller extent. So it's not the city itself, it's the, it, but it's the resources of the city yes. that they're and, threatening. And the fact that this is a, another hostile force anxious to gain more land, more resources, to capture Rome and eventually to capture Ravenna. And that is, in the course of this book, that is the long story that is going on, that is running on constantly, and it's always a threat. And the other threat, again, not on its doorstep, but to the world, the, the uh, Christian world by this stage, is Islamic conquest. Conquest. Um, I'm sorry. The Islamic con conquest indeed. is is happening all along the southern frontiers and indeed the western. I suppose. Yes, yes, um, and that's another long, long process which takes many decades, and le left few marks in Ravenna, but which is nonetheless part of this this whole story of how the city shrank from being such an important capital, such an important centre of trade, to a less significant uh, port. And um, there's, there's some drama around the time of the Justinian II, who uh, 
the, the Ravenati had a problem with him, they or did. vice versa. They <laughs> did, or he thought that they'd been betraying him and he had a problem with them. <laughs> um, it's very uh, unclear exactly why he decided that the people of Ravenna had been so treacherous and had to be punished. There are several possible occasions for him to learn that they were very independent-minded and were not prone to accepting imperial decrees. But the upshot was that he sent a very strong fleet to attack the city, to punish the city, and he captured the, the Archbishop Felix and all the notables who were rounded up and put on ships and sailed back to Constantinople. And there they were tried, many of the senators were killed, Felix was blinded and sent into exile uh, in the Crimea, where Ovid had been sent into exile, where Pope Martin had been sent into exile. A, a, a place, a really grim place. <laughs> but he made an unexpected return. But, um, uh, so what, what date are we there? Six nine, he, he ruled from 685 to 95, and then after his exile, Justinian II ruled again from 705 to 711. And so I think it's a, it's a period of the, of the early 8th century. And then quite soon after that, the, the um, Muslims besiege Constantinople. Yes. Um, so the, the whole of the empire is suddenly rocked and um, what happens there and how does it affect Ravenna? The very successful um, plans to besiege Constantinople, uh, not the first time, but this combined naval and military operation of, um, that occurred um, in 715 was a very important uh, turning point the Muslims were absolutely determined to capture the city and to make it their capital. And of course, once Constantinople was captured, they would then spread into Europe. They would have the, the, the road would be open to uh, the Balkans and into the West. So their purpose was quite distinctly, uh, and it's well documented, that was their plan. And the emperor who f halted this siege and and defended the city so that the Arabs had to withdraw after a one-year siege was Leo III. But he did, in, in, in his, the course of his reign, introduce the policy of uh, removing icons, if not whitewashing them or um, sometimes breaking them, so that people would not be uh, tempted to fall into the terrible sin of idolatry. And this is very interesting because in Ravenna, although today there are no icons uh, such as we uh, know existed in the East, there must have been many, many icons. And of course, there are many representations of Christ and Mary and the saints, all of which count as idols in the mind of the iconoclasts. So iconoclasm was a very important event, although Again, we don't see traces of it in actual whitewashing of images in Ravenna. The, Raven the Ravenati were, were very devoted to their religious icons and clung to them. And, and, and the, the practice of iconoclasm was not welcomed in Rome or in Ravenna, and therefore it represents a divider between the East and West, the, this, uh, over this crucial business of iconoclasm. Um, it makes Ravenna one of the pivots between East and West, and when it yeah. decides to turn to the West and to follow the lead of the popes of Rome, that is a very clear negation of the imperial policy, a denial of its uh, validity, and a, a striking out for independence which is, of course, much um, disapproved of in Constantinople. And it's a, so it's, a, it's about then, then, in the mm, sort of 
7.30s, or around about then, 7.20s, that there is this, that Ravenna starts moving its orientation towards its own territory and or its, its own hinterland, Rome and because presumably Constantinople no longer really has the authority, it, it has the moral authority but not the force to bring it into its orbit, is that? Yes, that, 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 that's pretty much it. I think the, the other issue which is not at all clear is that normally the authorities in Constantinople sent an imperial governor to govern the area of Ravenna and its outlying parts. This was called the Exarchate and the, under the Exarch. And normally the Exarchs changed, were turned, turned uh, they returned to Constantinople after a period of, of, of serving as Exarch in Ravenna. But this turnover stops and one particular Exarch is left in authority for a very long time and it's clear that he's a weak figure and he's unable to govern and he doesn't have the resources to defend the city and it is also I think a, a, an instance of Constantinople abandoning Ravenna. It's decided that it can't uh, send resources to sustain the Exarchate and what remains of it is eaten away by the Lombards as they uh, capture different castles one by one. Um, and that's a long period of decline until the final moment in 751 when the Lombards breach the walls and rush in. So they rush in, here are the Lombards, in Ravenna. And what happens in Ravenna when the Lombards come? Is it business as usual, but just somebody different in the, in the hot seat? Or is it rapine and slaughter? There is very little evidence that there was any disruption. It's quite extraordinary. It must have been a violent takeover, but no records indicate that people were killed. The bishop apparently came to terms with King Eistulf, and the king moved into the palace and started issuing his decrees and lived as the exarchs and the kings before him had lived in the old imperial palace of Ravenna. Beautifully decorated, still standing probably uh, in large areas of the city centre. Vast palace, huge. So there was a change of government, but very little change in the city. And the bishop, as soon as King Eistulf left to go on his conquests, the bishop simply tried to take over. And I think we there find a very interesting point, which is that the notables of the city insisted that the clergy appoint a layman, a nobleman, as their bishop. And this was quite unusual. Normally the clergy chose their archdeacon or another priest as a worthy man of the, from the clerics, uh, who already ordained and already practised in the liturgy. And on this occasion, in the 740s, lo and behold, um, the, the nobles were able to insist that they should have a much more vigorous outsider, a, a layman, who was rapidly um, uh, promoted through all the ranks, uh, divorced his wife, uh, and became the Archbishop of Ravenna. And in that capacity, he then led the city and managed the city finances, the resources, and, uh, uh, and took charge in a way that is quite interesting. But by, and also, by this stage, he's really having to deal with the Pope. Well, he, they've always had to deal with the Pope, but the, the position of the Pope in relation to Ravenna is also very important. Very important and absolutely uh, one of the highest rivalry. Way, way back um, in the 5th century, the emperors had decided that the, 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 the Church of Ravenna must be uh, as important as the Church of Rome because the emperor lived in Ravenna. And this was a long-held belief that where the emperor resides, the church must be uh, have supreme authority. 
So the Bishop of Ravenna was promoted and he got lots of, uh, of um, subordinate bishops under him, but the Emperor did not make him the equal of the Bishop of Rome, probably could never have done that. He said that the Bishop of Ravenna must remain subordinate to the Bishop of Rome. And this rankled over through all the centuries, was another long-running rivalry. So although they went to visit each other, and although occasionally the bishops of Rome passed through Ravenna, and they held services together, and they looked at their relics, and they admired their finery, their silken vestments, their mosaics, their silver, silver vessels, all these other wonderful things that do survive, that are still visible in the churches and in the National Museum in Ravenna. Nonetheless, there was a great rivalry and the bishops of Rome were always at pains to show that they were superior. They, and they, of course, are being threatened by the Lombards just as much yes. as in Ravenna. And you mention an extraordinary situation when the the military authority prevailing suddenly becomes Frankish and you describe Pope Stephen um, trying to, going to visit um, the Frankish King Pippin because he's threatened by the Lombards and bizarrely, the Lombards allow give him safe passage through. How does that work? The Lombards had uh, re great respect for the See of St. Peter. And the fact that St. Peter had said, uh, who was the first bishop of Rome, and Christ had said, you are Peter, Petra, on this Petra I will found my church. This gave the bishops of Rome an enormous authority. And they were at pay, they constantly wished to assert it over the bishops of other cities. The Lombards had originally had other beliefs. We don't. Some of them were Arians. Many of them, uh, doubtless, uh, pagan had pagan practices. But eventually, at the end of the seventh century, their king, Liutprand, decided that they should all be Catholics. And that event in 698 was still very, quite new for the Lombards. And it came with a notion of the great authority of the Bishop of Rome, which must be respected. And so at the point where Pope Stephen was desperate to uh, stop the Lombards uh, capturing Rome and was invited by King Pippin to go to uh, the north of France, um, the Lombards were unable, or the Lombard king was unable, was unwilling to deter the party. He kept on saying, you shouldn't go, it's too dangerous, you mustn't go, I don't want you to go. But they, the Pope insisted, it's and a very that was curious, a very extraordinary visit. There's Liutprand and the Lombards wanting to take his city and letting him go and speak to Pippin to stop Pippin taking the city, but I suppose that's the difference between Rome and the Sea of Rome. Yes, the city of Rome is always an object of uh, many people's desire. Uh, many rulers and military rulers wish to uh, rule Rome, but the Sea of Rome and the Bishop of Rome is a separate Roman identity, that's the Roman Church. And the Roman Church has relations throughout the West and is a very important, very important, uh, or the most significant uh, religious authority uh, should you need a ruling on uh, liturgical practice or clerical practice or monastic practice um, or even books to read and which sort of music to, to sing in church. So very, very wide range of uh, elements of religious observance on which Rome, the Church of Rome, was the supreme authority. And the Lombards felt uh, uh, clearly obliged to respect the bishops of the city, even while they wanted to conquer the walls and get inside. So then, then there's, um, the, the, his visit to France is the 
beginning of a complete shift of of power block um, that um, Constantinople may try to get back Ravenna and Exarchate, but they have no power, and the Frankish king sticks to his alliance with the Pope, but he plays off Ravenna and Rome against one another in some way? Yes, it's a very interesting uh, period. Uh, clearly, the Roman the Roman see, the Pope Stephen II, makes a very interesting bargain. He strikes a very interesting bargain with King Pippin. He will recognise Pippin and his children as the ruling family. They are the dynasty that rules in Francia. And Pippin will come and bring his troops into Italy and defeat the Lombards. And he does on two occasions. And in 755 and 756, battles are fought the Lombard kings agree that they will not besiege Rome, that they will respect the treaties, that they will give back to the, to, to the city of Rome its properties, castles which had been captured and so on. And then the Lombard kings renege on their promises. So there is a continuing uh, ec uh, extension of rivalry over properties and territories in Italy, including Ravenna, um, until the time of Pippin's son, Charles, we know as Charlemagne, who, come again, campaigns in Italy several times in order to defeat the Lombards and in order to impose his control. But he can see that the Bishop of Ravenna is a, something of an ally and more useful to him as an ally than as an enemy of Rome. And so he's interested in what uh, Ravenna can do for for, for Charles uh, and the three visits that he makes there um, I think must have impressed him enormously with this dense concentration of fantastic buildings decorated in the most amazing style more concentrated than you see in Rome at the same time Rome is still full of a lot of pagan buildings they're, big, they're being converted there are mosaic churches, but in Ravenna, he also saw the mosaic of Justinian. It's so and interesting, I'm, this coming I, full circle. And I feel, and also the mosaics of the, the statue of Theodoric, the mounted statue of Theodoric, very large, which was obviously a converted Roman equestrian statue, but nonetheless labelled as the statue of King Theodoric and he wanted to be an emperor like Justinian, and he took away the statue of Theodoric and set it up in front of his palace in Aachen. So, along with all the columns and the marbles and the other things, that he wanted to build a very splendid capital city in northern Germany, he wanted to have Theodoric's statue too. <laughs> so by, by the time that Charlemagne, Charlemagne's authority, uh, so to speak, gathers... Rome and Ravenna into his orbit. Byzantium is finished in this in, in Italy, or do they still have some sort of nominal authority? Byzantium what? is by no means finished in Italy because the south, that is the area below Naples, down to the boot and the heel of Italy and across to Sicily remain under Byzantine imperial control uh, and indeed southern Italy for centuries there's a very strong Byzantine influence. Sicily was conquered by the Arabs in the ninth century, a long slow conquest, but southern Italy resisted and in those areas Greek was spoken even into the 20th century and Greek monasteries and uh, Byzantine-style churches and mosaics and uh, coinage, for example. The emperors of southern Italy, of Benevento, minted beautiful gold coins, very much on the pattern of the Byzantine coins. So there was a very strong and very important influence in southern Italy, which was renewed and refreshed uh, right through till the 
uh, 11th century when the Normans arrived, another tribal people from the north wanting to live in the sunny south. Um, but Constantinople kept its very strong connections with southern Italy. But by the time Charlemagne's crowned in Rome in 800, Ravenna, Ravenna is in his orbit from that point. Yes. And, and within not very long, Venice starts appearing as a maritime power and Ravenna is silting up and defunct. Yes. Um, it's a very, that, that's, a, that's another slow, declining uh, um, element of the port of Classis, which does not survive to become a very vibrant trading centre. And it's the people uh, first uh, uh, at Comacchio to the north and then further north um, um, from the island of Torcello to the settlements that become Venice uh, in the early ninth century, and that they take over as the great traders. Um, we've talked about the, the arc of the history, there's the story of Ravenna, but turning more specifically to your book, in a way, I mean, it is all part of your book, but you, you sew this complex material together in short chapters, making thematic connections, which you did in your previous book, um, the general, more general Byzantine book. Um, but the, for example, you have chapters on living in 5th or 6th or 7th century Ravenna, where you focus on a particular kind of records. And I, I, I wondered if you would be able to talk for a moment about the nature of the records you're, you were looking at, because it just, the material you've gathered seems so abstruse in many ways. How have, what's it like trying to make a portrait of how people lived in Ravenna? What are you using? It's the most difficult thing imaginable, because you think uh, what did they wear? What did they eat? How did they survive in this marshy atmosphere where um, the story was that when you go hunting, when the Ravenati go hunting, they get into their punts and boat around. And presumably they went to sort of fish uh, and to shoot birds and rabbits on other islands. Um, but I think it really was a very, uh, a, it was a difficult life. And yet... And yet the, the wills that survive in the archive of the city, which were written on papyrus, re record the sort of colourful clothing that they liked. Elite people, rich people, what liked to wear silk and linen. Now, these are not your average woolen clothing that any um, person who keeps a sheep can, or a goat can make. They're, they're rather sophisticated. And then they like to wear red and green. And you get dis descriptions of, of, of multicoloured shirts, which are a, a part of uh, an inheritance that a young boy is going to get uh, when he grows up. So there must have been people who had a great sense of uh, style. And they imported silks from the East and wanted to wear these very special, beautifully coloured uh, materials. But how, and how are you, what, what form are these, how are you finding these things out? You're, you're going to the, re the records office, you're saying, can you give me the wills for the years <laughs> 600 to 620 today, please? And they're in what language? They're in about uh, uh, 25 uh, different languages. Or so. If only. <laughs> there, are no, there are no records. The papyri are, that were written in Ravenna are now scattered throughout the world in different museums. But thanks to a great Danish scholar, we have an edition and we have a collection. There's not that many, but they are very, very interesting, mainly because they are acts of uh, transmission of property, mainly between uh, parents and their children or, or families and the church. And they are gifts and uh, lists of property that's going to be inherited and they give a description of uh, actual houses with uh, uh, 
bathhouse and mill and the river and the, you know, all the facilities that you need on a farm. And then peach trees and apricots and, uh, not peaches, or apricots, let me be accurate, apples <laughs> and plums. But actual nut trees are named, are labelled. So this, the, these long lists of property give you a sense of what were what the resources of these agricultural people and and the houses they lived in. And then there are all the records of the witnesses who witnessed these documents. And usually there have to be half a dozen and they are there with their titles, their names and their titles and sometimes their occupations. And some of them write in Latin and some of them write in Gothic and some of them write in Greek, and some of them make a cross. Most of the women make a cross, and then somebody signs for them. So you get another sense of the, of the different categories of people. Is, is the man who writes his signature in Greek really Greek? Or is he just affecting a knowledge of Greek? Um, is the, are the, well, the Goths who write in Gothic, that's absolutely clear. They are Gothic Aryan clerics in the 550s who are being obliged to sell property because they're running out of money. So that's the pressure that happens before the Aryan churches are transferred by imperial degree, decree to the Catholics. But so the, these records that you're referring to, the, the, where, where are they kept nowadays? There are several in the British Library. Um, there are many scattered all over Italy. There are some in Ravenna, not very many. But because they are documents which state that this is the court which is meeting in the court of Ravenna and that the archive and the, the document once witnessed is going to be sent to the municipal archive in Ravenna, we can see that they are located there. And the people that sign, the scribes that write, the judges who sit in judgment, the, all the witnesses are there in person signing their names. And you can see from the signatures that they all sign with a different sort of... because these documents are now reproduced in facsimile, which is absolutely staggering, so that we can see them as they actually are. Sometimes they're on enormous pieces of papyrus and the writing is very, very large. Sometimes they're on tiny, tiny scraps. And one of the earliest records is sixth small fragments that were found in the binding of another book much later and were all pieced together. So it's a great work of, of, of research and discovery which has made that material available and I couldn't possibly be, have done it myself. It's I'm absolutely dependent on the papyrologists who've done all that work. And then the people who deal with inscriptions have dealt with all the inscriptions on the tombs and there are many of them. And then there is, of course, the one, one wonderful historical source, which is a written account by a cleric named Agnellus, who lived in the mid-9th century and wrote about the history of the bishops of the city of Ravenna. And he not only wrote about the bishops and their lives, he wrote about what people thought about them, what they did, and sometimes he has stories which aren't related to the bishops at all, but which happened, or which he wants to place in their time. It's so and interesting that's a, because it's fantastic. Source. He's, he's you, you refer to him a, a lot, and um, one has to uh, because he's as, as a reader, you you ha you have to remind yourself that just because he's a long time ago, it doesn't mean to say that he's contemporary with what he's writing about. Often he's drawing on oral memory from 300 years ago. Or, yes, or that's something. very clear. And uh, when he describes the things that he can see, like inscriptions, he's very, very good at writing down inscriptions that, for example, dedications of churches. This church was built by Bishop X in the year X, and he writes them down accurately, and he seems to have gone and looked very carefully. And when he says, there is an inscription, but I cannot read it, you, can, you must believe that that is his situation. He's writing in the 840s and these buildings were put up in the, in the 6th century. Hardly surprising he can't read it. 
perhaps some of the mosaics have fallen out, or it's just the whole building has been shaken by an earthquake and is all um, half destroyed. It's very, it's very impressive what he did. He was an antiquarian. He really enjoyed looking at these buildings and looking at the images that he saw. And he's the person who tells that there, that there were icons. Right. It's, it's the, the, the way in which you, you stitch together the, the I mean, I, I asked slightly leading questions about the sources, that they, they, that they are obviously are so multiple, um, but you have stitched them together into this amazing narrative and portrait of, of, of a city which you present at the end as being a very significant cultural, uh, you used the word earlier, pivot between both East and West and also um, in a way between um, the classical period and also the medieval period, the switching from insofar as it, Ravenna is the inheritor of the Roman Empire in a, in a way, it then gets picked up by the med medieval Frankish king. Yes. So it's, it, it's a, you, you present this wonderful portrait, rich and coherent, probably didn't have any coherence at all, but somehow reading your book, it, it makes sense of so much. And um, I, I, I think I've taken enough of your time now, probably. I feel I could go on asking you more and more questions, but I think I should release you and say thank you for doing this podcast for us and for writing this splendid work. It remains only for me to say that it is available at £30. It would be cheap for what it is at twice that price. And Judith is signing book plates for us to put inside if you'd like them. Um, so do contact us if you'd like a copy. And meanwhile, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.